0: Sometime in the early 1800s, a guy named Urelli Corelli Hill moved from his hometown in Connecticut to New York City. Hill came from a musical household. His father had played the Fife during the Revolutionary War, and Hill soon became involved in the city's classical music scene, conducting performances and playing the violin. In 1842, Hill joined up with a group of musicians and decided to put on a concert that December. They settled on performing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know the one. And on December 7th, 1842, they put on what would become the first concert of the New York Philharmonic. This is Especially Big Data, a podcast from Fathom Information Design where we take a look at data and the things it can teach us. So, back to the orchestra.
1: I would say uh, as an institution, the Philharmonic has always had a, um, a sense of its own importance. That's Kevin Schlotman. I'm the digital archives manager for the uh, New York Philharmonic Archives. So even back then at that first
0: performance, they knew they were the start of something big?
1: Uh, It started as a cooperative, Uh, and so the initial group of musicians, they they got together and they formed, you know, literally a cooperative at a constitution, um, and they printed, you know, their first program. They said, this is our first performance, performance number one, with the strong implication that there would be future performances.
0: And the nice thing about Hill and his fellow musicians having a bit of a sense of self-importance
1: is that it fostered... A culture of keeping stuff, and that's what makes it uh, a uniquely rich archive. We actually have the Beethoven's 5th score that was on the stand on December 7th, 1842. Somehow, it is, we've managed to keep that thing um, in, you know, in, in the Philharmonic since 1842, and that's really amazing that we have that.
0: And by the way, that sense of importance was not at all misplaced. The New York Philharmonic has won more than a dozen Grammys played all over the world and is widely considered one of the premier cultural institutions in New York. Schlotman's job is to take all the stuff the orchestra has collected scores, attendance books, whatever, and digitize it find ways of sharing it with as many people as possible.
1: Uh, we are in the process of uh, digitizing uh, pretty much everything that we have in our archives, uh, every piece of paper essentially going back to eighteen forty two we're, you know, we're, we're archivists, and archivists believe in, in access and use, and we have a busy reading room. People come in here and look at stuff. Uh, we have uh, conductors that come in to look at scores. We have school groups that come in to hear about the Philharmonic. We have researchers come in to do all sorts of things. Uh, but if you compare the reach of um, that to putting stuff up on the internet, um, it's nothing. So really, what we, we want to make this stuff uh, as widely available as possible.
0: Archivists like Schlottmann do this work for a lot of reasons. Composers and musicians use the archive to examine old scores, and music geeks like to look through it because it's fun. But the archive is also really important for people like this guy.
2: So my name is Fabien Accominotti, and I'm an assistant professor at the London School of Economics, and I study essentially the sociology of elites, status, and culture.
0: Akomenadi is part of a research team at Columbia University that's using the Philharmonic Archive to try and learn more about the relationship between culture and social elites in the 20th century.
1: A couple of years after we started the digitization process, some sociologists uh, led by Seamus Kahn at Columbia University approached us and said, we would love to look at your uh, your subscriber information, uh, because we have extremely rich, detailed information about everybody who has subscribed to a New York Philharmonic concert dating back to 1842. So uh, how many uh, how many tickets they bought, where they sat, what their address was.
0: Komanadi and Kahn and their team wanted to use that data to figure out, well, who was actually going to see the Philharmonic back in the early nineteen. 19-
2: Essentially, the history of this is that in uh, the Gilded Age, in the late 19th century in the U.S., you got the emergence of this kind of cultural hierarchy and of this elite culture that serves as a marker for elite status. And the, the common narrative is that this happened through processes of exclusion as essentially the culture itself and its content became purified of some popular content, so it became this more rarefied uh, corpus of cultural material that um, was yeah, purified from references to more working class uh, elements within culture, and therefore became this kind of distinctive thing to enjoy. The assumption is also that, yeah, at the same time, the audience for this culture, so people who'd go to concerts, who'd attend concerts, um, was also becoming more exclusive and essentially that the purification of the content was paralleled by a purification of the audience. But the problem was, the documents that kept track
0: of the Philharmonic subscribers weren't in a great shape to work with.
1: It had been digitized, but it was still just essentially a photograph of a handwritten page of this information.
0: And this isn't like nice, neat, easy handwriting. This is straight up 19th century cursive where all the letters are all, yeah, suffice to say it was a pain to work with. See, for research and data analysis, it's often not helpful to just have a picture of some words. Sure, you could go through and read them and manually count or sort things, but if you want to use any computing power to help you, you need to get that information into a format computers can understand and computers understand text and numbers much better than they do images. So Accominati and his team organized a small army of Columbia undergrads to manually transcribe the information of every single person who had bought season tickets to the Philharmonic since 1842.
2: It was a pretty, I think at one point we had up to 15 undergrads working uh, 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 simultaneously on the the project, on coding the data. That's pretty intense, yeah, 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 yeah. So
0: now they knew who was going to the Philharmonic in the 19th century. Or, at least, they had names.
2: Some of these people, um, which by the way are these kind of famous names of, you know, the Vanderbilt's and the the Rockefellers and the Roosevelt's.
0: But for people who weren't a Roosevelt or a Rockefeller, just having a name wasn't enough. Now keep in mind, Akkomanadi and his team are trying to figure out what kinds of people are attending the Philharmonic. So they needed to know what kind of lives these people lived.
2: I remember being very, very adamant that we should complement this with all sorts of other sources that would enable us. It was a little bit of detective work, essentially, uh, going through these other sources to enable us to to essentially identify uh, our subscribers a little bit better to provide more uh, context.
0: They looked at an old list called the Social Register, which was basically a who's who of the New York elite.
2: The Social Register of New York, which is this, long list of elite families in the city, it's about 1% of the families in the city that are represented in there, Uh, when they were in the social register we would consider them as being socially elite." And that elite status is exactly what they were trying
0: to measure. They also looked at things like how many high-end social clubs people were in to figure out just how elite they were. For people who weren't in the way upper class, they combed through census records to figure out where they worked. They also looked at the
2: addresses in the city of our subscribers, which uh, the, the Philharmonic kept a, a, a record of, obviously, because they wanted to send them their, um, their tickets. And this is a pretty good marker, too, of social status, like depending on whether you live on, on Fifth Avenue or in, in Harlem.
0: And after looking at all this data and crunching the numbers, Akkomenadi and his team came to an unexpected result.
2: Unlike what you'd expect, which is this kind of closing up of culture on this little elite, this kind of purification and exclusion uh, and monopolization, if you will, a little bit of of culture by, by the social elite, what we find is actually an opening up of culture to social strata that are not the elite itself.
0: So as things like classical music became this sort of status marker,
2: the audience for it
0: actually expanded instead of shrunk. It began to include a new group.
2: These social strata are actually uh, made up of the the, the kind of growing professional, managerial, and intellectual middle class that was then rising in uh, U.S. cities. And what we kind of argue is that it's the inclusion of this middle class that helped to legitimate the kind of cultural enterprises that were supported and driven by the elite.
0: Acominati said his research team hasn't looked at other cultural institutions yet, think museums and theaters, but he thinks this would hold true there too, with one exception.
2: York institution, which is the the Met, the Metropolitan Opera, uh, which we we're interested in and um, uh, so this is is interesting because it's a different art form. Opera is a little bit less kind of uh, elite in the kind of hierarchy of genres in music, uh, at least at the time. If you watch, you know, uh, the Godfather. At one point, you know, there's a there's a scene where I think it's not De Niro goes to the opera, and you can see that there's actually the the immigrant uh, Italian community, which is, which which are big big opera fans because operas are essentially in Italian and they're an Italian form. And so yeah, they they kind of uh, introduce a little bit of impurity in the audience because there's these working class uh, immigrants essentially, uh, yeah.
0: As for Kevin Schlotman at the Philharmonic Archives, his team is continuing to digitize their records and convert them to computer text instead of just photographs. That's helpful for researchers like Acominati and the general public. Next up, every musician who has played with the Philharmonic since 1842.
1: Definitely one of the main reference queries we get is, did so-and-so play in the orchestra? And if they did so, when did they play? Uh, What concerts did they play in?
0: Freeing that text from images and making it searchable could help people who are looking for information like that. But the process will take some time.
1: Because, again, it's a mix of 19th century handwritten material, uh, printed material, things like uh, roster sheets. Uh, you know, we have we have weekly sheets, like, let's say, somebody gets sick and they hire a sub for one, uh, for one concert. Uh, we have all that information, but it's, it's locked up in a, in a million different paper sources. And we are in the process of... Um, You know, in a a semi manually uh, putting that stuff into the database and then proofing it very carefully.
0: So, what have we learned here? Well, back in the 1800s, when the Philharmonics started keeping all their documents, they probably had no idea that more than a century later, it would be used by some social scientists to study a time period that hadn't even happened yet. But the records they accumulated ended up creating this treasure trove of information that all sorts of people have found useful.
1: Um, we have... Uh researchers, musicologists, who are, who are looking at the materials. Uh, we also have musicians, so uh, conductors. They're conducting a piece uh, upcoming uh, next season, and they want to take a look at how Lenny marked it.
0: That Lenny, by the way, is Leonard Bernstein. He wrote the music for West Side Story, among many, many, many other things, and was once the music director for the New York Philharmonic. The real lesson here, I think, is that data exists everywhere, even in places you might not think to look for it. If someone asked you how to quantify social status in the early 20th century, your first thought probably wouldn't have been philharmonic subscriber records. But by taking this information and bringing it beyond the realm of paper documents or photographs, it's possible to do some really powerful analysis that otherwise might not have been possible. And by the way, if you want to find out more about Accominati's research, his paper will be published in a forthcoming issue of the American Journal of Sociology. If you want to play with the Philharmonic data yourself, it's available on the New York Philharmonic website.
1: It's CC0 licensed, so people can really do um, whatever they want with it. For example, a digital humanities class from UCLA under Professor Miriam Posner recently took a look at our uh, our data and did some looking at uh, the frequency of composers that were played in the 19th century. So that's a question that you can easily ask of this data, um, and the data is there. So they asked it and they found that uh, you know there's an interesting move between French and German composers over the course of the 19th century.
0: And Schlotman's advice for other archives who want to start the process of converting their papers and images into machine-readable text? Think carefully about what data you have and what you want to do with it. And frankly, I think that's good advice for anybody. Especially Big Data is a production of Fathom Information Design in Boston, Massachusetts. This episode was produced by me, Charlie Smart, with the help of the Fathom crew. Music for this episode was composed by Beethoven, Strauss, Astrodemo Giorgini, and Silent Partner. For more, you can visit us online at www.fathom.info.